I'ma say what I feel And I promise to keep it real Welcome to the Red Room Well, you gotta be a rider till your fears are diminishing the doubts are behind ya. It's hard to grind and the business got me stressed in the rent room. We let that shit up off our chest. You know the street nerds got no time for no kata. Sass in class, yes, that's Mr. Bolakaja. Never have to guess when you're listening to Hilliard. He gon' bring more game than a shark playing billiards. It's all about the crap of screenwriting. It's exciting when you turn an outline into something enlightening. Your pen and words are like bullets in a gun. Write what you feel, say what you want. Welcome to the Rant Room. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Screenwriter's Rant Room, where we talk about movies, TV, books, comic books, pop culture, but our main focus is craft and screenwriting. It's writing in general. There'll be some directing stuff, too, from time to time, but not this episode, because this is a bottom episode, because it's just me, Chris Derrick, today on the mic, not Lisa and Tim here. They're away uh, due to the pandemic, so what are we going to do? Like I think we're going to do what we, what we always do when we have a bottle episode. We're going to talk about some wild stuff that's going on. Or at least stuff that I think is, you know, is interesting. Hopefully you guys will find it interesting too. I have no idea. Oscar race is coming soon. It's, uh, I'm recording this a couple of days after Thanksgiving. And no film came out to get everyone talking. There was no buzz in the, la- the whole month about in cinema. Except for the the anticipation of three films coming out on streamer services so the streamers will probably get their Oscar gold this year we have uh, Mank by David Fincher comes out next Friday on Netflix it's probably got two week run probably had a two week run in the theaters some places in the country not here in LA then we have Denzel Washington presents the August Wilson play turned into a movie Ma Rainey's Black Bottom Starring Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman in his final role, which I believe is going to get an Oscar. He's, he's going to get a posthumous Oscar. The last time someone as beloved as him, who transformed the community and the acting community, was up for was Heath Ledger for Dark Knight. He died. Great performance. Got his Oscar. Before that, it was Peter Finch for Network. Another great person everyone loved. Great performance. Died before the, before the movie came out. Uh, I mean, before the movie was up for the awards, and he won. So I kind of feel that's going to happen. The contender against that is uh, One Night in Miami, which is Regina King's debut film. You know, I'm, I'm not going to call uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom or One Night in Miami so-called black film because I feel the subjects that they're covering are inclusive to everyone. They're the American experience. And if anything, they're just um, it's American cinema with black leads. And as opposed to being some subgenre called urban film or black film, I kind of believe though that these two films and Mank are going to clean up at the Oscars, uh, and mainly because you, you got to put an asterisk behind these films to a certain degree. Not that I, that I believe this, but I think people will believe this is because you know for every nominee and winner, there's, there's going to be an asterisk because they're going to say that's the COVID year when there really wasn't like the bulk of the competition of films that could have come out to people to compete against each other. And neither there needs to be a competition per se, but but you want to see the best work that is being put out that year and you want to be able to gauge it and look at it and say wow that was a great year for film and you just say there's just great film being made and you can just you know whatever but that's all kind of 
up in the air because everyone at those companies that were probably thinking about doing Oscar releases, these four-year consideration films, I bet all this stuff is being held back because they didn't know what to do. And they're just hoping that they want to do the traditional run and get the theater and the theater bump and to pay for these films that, you know, they probably don't get a good like licensing rate from Amazon or Netflix because those two platforms don't make those kind of films on their own. I don't even see like a lot of that stuff on there as like a prime film or like a Netflix, which is part of your basic subscription to get like the edgy cinema that like Miramax and Fine Line and Sony Pictures Classics was putting out in the in the heyday of indie film in like the 90s. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure P.T. Anderson, if he had a movie coming out now, I mean, I, if he wanted to do an original film, I mean, like maybe it gets picked up by Amazon, maybe it gets picked up by um, uh, Netflix after it's been made. I don't think they're paying for those. So I don't think they're funding those type of movies. And now that Disney owns Fox, Fox Searchlight is, there's no great talent in Fox Searchlight coming out either. And I think Fox Searchlight is going to slowly wither away because Disney doesn't believe in that type of stuff. They just want to put everything on Disney Plus and make you pay your $30. Um, and that's the same thing with Warner Brothers. Like, Warner Brothers, like, like really doesn't have any, like, impetus to put out, like, you know, transcendental films. Uh, that's why they each the thing called the Affleck spot or the town spot, as they called it. Uh, and look what they're doing. They took Wonder Woman 1984 and they put it on, they're going to debut it on HBO Max on Christmas Day, which is usually the big day for putting a lot of movies in the theater. And because they're trying to drive traffic, trying to drive traffic to get a subscription. Particularly as you think about subscription based services, you know, I could pay $12.99 or whatever it is for a service. And maybe watch this movie that I want to see seven or eight times in one month and then cancel the service. Whereas, you know, these movies that cost excess of $100 million and they put all those advertising on it and they want you to come to the theater to see it and they make, you know, projections of 500, 700 million kind of worldwide, 300, million worldwide, whatever it is, or maybe even just domestically, that's because people come and see those movies five, six, seven, eight times in the theater. I remember people were saying they watched Wonder Woman. Like, women watched Wonder Woman five times in the theater. Same thing with Black Panther. Black people I know watched it seven, eight, nine, ten times in the theater. And this goes back to movies. I started thinking about this back when Titanic first, like, beat a billion dollars. I was like, not that many people were seeing that movie. A bunch of people were seeing it multiple times. And that is kind of what put the, is that collective experience of going to the theater, the ritual experience is that people love. That's why they go and watch these movies five, six, seven, eight, nine times in the theater because they love that whole kind of like design. And it's like, you know, there's, there's a collective experience. I think that Edgar Wright was talking about today, you know, he's the filmmaker behind Baby Driver, was saying he just watched Fatal Attraction and he, and he missed that moment when you watch a movie and the entire audience applauds, cheers some moment on screen that the characters do. He's just remarking there was that scene where Ann Archer says to Glenn Close, if you come near my family again, I'll kill you. I mean, I mean like, like, like that brought cheers in the house. 
to it's just like the scene in Independence Day where the dog uh, Boomer like you know doing that fireball is eating up everything on the freeway and he jumps off that car roof and like lands in that little alcove underneath the freeway thing and he escapes the fireball like, everyone loves that scene and it brings like this collective sigh of release and it elevates the emotional experience in such a fantastic way I was just watching Aliens the other day and I remember seeing which I've seen I don't know how many times and I'm just sitting down I have maybe seen it in like 10 or 15 years at this point but I've probably seen it 30 times and yeah that moment when Ripley's in the exoskeleton and she's like get away from her you bitch to the queen you still get those little goof up like ooh this is dope shit but you know that's where the audience was screaming in the movie theater they were like whistling and clapping and stuff like that and that is uh I guess that's a forgotten time period now I guess I guess I guess we don't have that anymore um you know when we had just had to watch things on streamers and you know and I'm just disappointed that the government didn't think to save the movie theaters but then again you know this goes back to when Ronald Reagan and that ass fuck Jesse Holmes were in the 80s they destroyed the National Endowment of the Arts the whole concept of like government supported art or government supporting the arts because it helps the citizens it helps the collective sense of easing our burden for living in a, in a capitalist society uh, as something that, that that you know that they got rid of you know like I think David O. Russell's film Spanking the Monkey was like the last movie that got funding from the National Endowment of Arts to do film so it's just interesting because then it's like you know like why is it that only Wall Street and the automakers get saved by government uh, I mean, the government's not even saving people so like how the hell like are they going to save the damn movie industry or not just movie industry but the theaters the theaters the cinemas the multiplexes the standalone movie palaces all those things that we go that is that house of worship that we love to all go and experience like what it means to be in the movie collectively in the dark and watch a story unfold with other people you know that thing that we've been doing since you know whatever the damn the, the cave paintings in Lascaux in France I mean that dates back to then but uh you know that's I, I guess that's what's going on for me um what else is going on that I wanted to talk about uh oh comic books cause Jeff Thorne has got like a Green Lantern book he's doing and he's doing like a Black uh, Panther book and I just was like I need to do my book this year like that is my big goal is to put out at least do one maybe two comic books series not just one issue but a series this year mini series uh now that i have like a little bit of a cushion of money from the show i'm working on i can really like dive deep into doing that to create something and put it out and have you people like buy it and have people buy it as opposed to just like making like pilots that no one reads or and certainly no one buys um and that's like the disheartening thing about being like uh, like writing in the film industry and team industry you know that's the thing about tv it's like it's such a closed system you know it's like that whole time when you could create your own movie and get people to see it in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, it was like it supplanted the concept of the great American novel. It was the great American indie film with great American screenplay. And that's something that, that anyone could do like anywhere. And obviously people could still make, you know, they could still make their 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 uh, films now and everything. But it's not the same. It's not like when, you know, like when Tarantino made... Um, Reservoir Dogs, or when Soderbergh made uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotapes. Like, those films were made in a time when 
there was like a thirst for that. I, th- I still think there is a thirst for that type of cinema. I just don't think that the companies want to who fund stuff or put, distribute stuff want to actually put all that out right now. Um, or maybe they do. I don't know. And you see a, a little bit of it on when they're you know like like Neon was cleaning up and A twenty four was cleaning up with all these great little pieces of film. These like specific voices and uh, it's not just the voice because you know that's what everyone looks for in a television show but it's the voice and the vision is what I think like separates cinema from television because you know in television the person who's writing it is not filming it is not determining how it looks you know how things are shot um, you know they ha- they necess- necessarily handing that off to someone else to do. There's a few people who get to do that. A few like f- filmmakers or showrunners or whatever get to direct pilots, but it's not that many. Um, and then you know it's just it's not it's, it's not a singular vision uh, that's been marshaled. It's marshaled all those forces. I'm not you know advocating that one person does it all. I'm just saying, but everyone is kind of following you behind that vision to make it work. Um, and that vision is just diluted on television. As much as the showrunner has a strong voice, he's not the one calling action and cut. And but but anyway, that's just uh, I guess those are my personal frustrations, not anything else. And then you wonder, well, well, well Chris, you're on a TV show, so why are you even um, having that conversation or thinking about that? I was like, I don't know. The TV show's going to end sometime, you know. So I always think about like, you know, they always tell you be looking for the next job when you're on the current job, you know, like in your free time, not during, you can't shirk anything you do, because I'm like neck deep in making sure that I'm like doing everything I possibly can for my current show, uh, just, you know, just going above and beyond what, uh, you know, just you have to, you're new and you got to justify the investment and just, and, and build your reputation as someone that, someone who works hard and contributes to the, to the whole plan, um, and I, um, and I'm embracing that challenge because it's exciting to do, uh, but it's also the, there's also just the other edge of me that like wants to feed something else. Like I want to do my stuff. I mean, that's why I want to do the comics. You know, the comics, you know, like like definitely can be that. But we'll see. We'll see what happens in like two month, two or three months when the uh, hopefully the pandemic is close to ending though because there'll be some vaccines or at least some vaccines in California. Hopefully in Georgia and maybe New Mexico, places where they're shooting uh, film and TV. Uh, but if not, um, we'll see. We'll see. I'm just curious to know. Was I talking about it now or about how like they used to make movies that always kind of like try to quantify if they should make them for Middle America? And it's just kind of like why? Because you know, right now, like movies don't have the the, the the they don't make the financial sense to release them theatrically because they don't because they can't play them in New York and California. Uh, I mean, like Tenet was playing in a bunch of in a, in so many states, uh, and it played what in drive-ins and here in California. But you know, a friend of mine in Colorado saw it in theater, and a friend of mine who lives in New York went to New, Je- went to New Jersey and saw it. But it's still grossly underperformed because it didn't have the major film markets. Uh, the major theatrical exhibition markets of New York and Los Angeles in particular. Um, But just probably like all of Southern California. And uh, I don't know. We'll see what happens. You know, I'm just staying focused on my TV gig at the moment. 
and hopefully I'll get another TV gig after that because I'm ex- I'm excited to just work working with. It's just interesting, different experience to not be the one who has to shepherd the whole vision uh, when you're writing on a television staff. I mean, it takes a lot of pressure off of you, but then again, you can't like slack off the same way that you might when you're writing a movie. Like, I might spend three hours of the day just throwing a ball around in the house trying to think of an idea. And I don't know if you can do that. Uh, well, you probably can't do that on, uh, in a room situation. You might be ruminating over ideas for that long, but you can't just sit back and kick it and you know bounce a tennis ball like like I'm in The Great Escape. Um, but anyway, I guess that's all I wanted to talk about today. Um, you can... Yeah, there's no craft discussion today. I wanted to talk about dialogue and how different ways you could do that and like the rhythm of it and... Uh, maybe I'll talk about this for a little bit right now. As you see, I'm doing, I'm working at the Beverly Playhouse, where I'm directing actors in the advanced class, and I'm doing a scene from August Wilson's The Piano Lesson. And what I really learned from working with theater pieces is, like, how do you control the dynamic of the scene just through language? And, and, that, and the rhythm of the language is what helps you do that. And the rhythm of the language... It's not necessarily the rhythm of what one individual speaks. It's the back and forth is what creates an interesting rhythm. And that's what's fascinating to me about working with someone as fantastic as August Wilson. Because you look at this, these plays and what he's saying and these big chunks of dialogue. And it's not broken up with like what the little tricks are and the hints are the way you do screenwriting. It's just dialogue for like, you know, a full page. Blah, 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 blah. And it's like, in, you know, me and the actors have to like figure out like where all those pauses are and what that means and, and, and where the dynamic little shifts are, the pivots in the scene. And how do you make sure the pivot is in the right place to make the scene go one way and then switch to another way so that you really get to the heart of the scene, um, the heart of the drama. It's really fascinating to look at how playwrights do that, even though they have a lot more. Uh, latitude with the the amount of dialogue they can write because of they only have what number I don't know ten scenes maybe eight scenes um, I don't you know whatever three acts five acts if you're doing Shakespeare as opposed to movie where it's what sixty seventy scenes so it's just it adds a level of uh, specificity to how you understand how language works how it helps you propel characters and helps you propel and hide the things that they're hiding, you know, because everybody is hiding something. Like, I saw that, I had this great quote about the essence of Western drama is hidden information. Um, you know, like, who knows it, what information and and when is it dispensed to other people? Like, that is the core of Western drama, if you think about it. Um, you know, it creates conflict. You know, people don't say what exactly what they mean. So people don't say the full information that they want to say. People want to protect you through lying or through the uh, the omission of some information. All that is like who's holding the secret. You know, like was like when is knowledge given and when is it and and who's it given by? And how long is it held? It's just a is a core thing, and that's what your and your dialogue is 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 how you control the ebb and flow and the release of 
information, which is therefore the you know where all the pivots come from, uh, the acting pivots, you know, and how do actors learn how to find new ways to play the choices in your dialogue? Like that's the key in understanding the rhythm of it. Is thinking about how actors are gonna like play it. Like you might have the way you set it said in your head. Oh, oh he's gonna say she's gonna say this line this way. Blah blah blah. blah. We should always be sitting around thinking, this is what you get when you do table reads, is, you, is like, are there other ways to say this line? Will it mean something else if it's said ironically, comedically, sorrowfully, with a certain, with different types of anger? Like, there's different registers of anger. And these are all things that you have to be considering about when you're writing the dialogue, because you want to think about how do you advance story? How do you not be redundant? How do you keep it from being on the nose and stay clever because you're not writing what people really talk you're writing what appears the way they really talk but it's more compressed and distilled down it's like a it's like a white rind reduction sauce that you're going to pour over a great meal you know uh, i mean that's what it is and if that wine reduction sauce is not there the meal might be great but it won't be as flavorful and that's what makes certain people like, you know, Tarantino or Sorkin or, you know, a bunch of these guys who are known for writing great dialogue. Like they, they, it stands out because uh, they understand that. Um, I don't know, I'm kind of speaking like without any examples, but um, I don't know. You know, if you can, you want to pick up the piano lesson by August Wilson, uh, there's a little scene at the end of Act Two. Um, this is big speech by Boy Willie. And it's just, you know, and I, when I was working on it with the, the, my actors, I took, you know, because play, plays are written differently, formatted differently than a screenplay. But I took it and retyped it. And I retyped it into a screenplay format so I could kind of look at it the way that I'm used to, like, breaking down scenes and taking the notes and the margins and everything like that. And you kind of, like, see where... Plus the, uh, the, uh, the concept of, like, retyping someone else's work uh, is that you kind of get an understanding of why they wrote certain words and how they phrase things because you're actually watching the words go down on the page and go oh you like you get a different insight into what he's thinking or she's thinking the playwright the author and how they're trying to say things and where they're leaving gaps for the actor to do things but they're not leaving gaps because that's not how plays are written trying to find those gaps is what you part of what you do when you are writing a movie or a, t- a screenplay? You're trying to figure out those quiet moments, those those releases of the tension, or or how, and how long is that that release? Is it five seconds? Is it one second? What is it? Those are all things that you got to kind of be thinking about and worrying about when you're writing dialogue. It's not just word choice and and the staccato ness of it and things like that. And you know, and, and what what's the emotion behind the word? Like, what is the emotion behind what you're saying? Because that dictates kind of how many words are going to be said and what words are going to be chosen. You know, because if you're angry, if you're happy, if you're trying to be clever, trying to be sassy, you're going to be saying different things. And everyone is those things. Everyone knows those emotions. And that kind of like informs how you kind of polish and hone your dialogue. Anyway, that's it. You have heard a scene of this bottle episode. If you have any questions, concerns, anything, you can email us at screenwritersrr at gmail.com. 
you can reach out to us and support the this podcast at screenwritersrr.com. Again, the the, the, the the email is screenwritersrr at gmail.com and the website is screenwritersrr.com uh, where you can find our link to our Patreon page or you can go to our shop and you can buy some t-shirts or some mugs which have been selling more effectively of late which we so appreciate everyone who's bought one in the last two or three months. I'd so, so uh, appreciate you. So does Hilliard, so does Lisa. Um, I guess we'll have some guests on next week. Thank you for listening, and Wakanda forever. I'ma say what I feel, and I promise to keep it real. Welcome to the Red Room. Well, you gotta be a rider Till your fears are diminishing The doubts are behind ya It's hard to grind And the business got me stressed In the red room We let that shit up off our chest You know the street nerd Has got no time for no caca Sass in class Yes, that's Mr. Bolakaja Never have to guess When you're listening to Hillier He gon' bring more game Than a shark playing billiards It's all about the crap of screenwriting It's exciting when you turn an outline Into something enlightening Your pen and words Are like bullets in a gun Write what you feel Say what you want Welcome to the Red Room. Red Room. Red Room.